So doubt turns out to be a relatively complicated topic. Some people, when they say they doubt, they doubt that God exists. Other people, when they say they doubt, they believe that God exists, but they don't believe that God loves them. Other people doubt the, the veracity, the authority, the, the, the scriptures themselves. Some people doubt themselves, baseball pitchers doubting that they can continue to go forward. I want to tell you just a little bit about my experience with doubt. Uh, I've shared this before, but when I uh, was little, I grew up in a, uh, a family that went to church pretty consistently, but I could never completely understand why, because it didn't seem to impact us. And my experience was very different than a lot of experiences of kids here. We just were talking about Lighthouse. Uh, my experience was actually quite different than that. I hated church. And uh, I famously led the coup in uh, middle school against our Sunday school teacher, and we jumped out the second floor window uh, uh, several times before that. And there was, I did everything I could. I was a, generally a pretty good kid. I didn't cut classes through high school. I did everything I could to get out of going to church because I just hated it. And uh, I had a little discussion with my dad at one point, and he said, look, uh, I am committed to, to, to make you attend church until you join once you join, you're on your own. I will have done my job. So I signed up for the membership class. It was a year long, by the way. So those of you who complain we have a three-hour membership class, it was a year long. I went. At the end, we were meeting with the leadership council of the church. There was 20 of us that had gone through the class. And we were, we were going to be questioned, and I was a little bit, we were all a little bit nervous about this, not certain what kind of you know, inquisition this was going to be. It turned out to be very innocuous. And uh, at the end, it was obvious we were all going to get approved. And then they said, do any of you have any questions? And I raised my hand and I said, yeah, I've got a question. I said, how many of you really believe this stuff? I said, I've tried. I can't say that I do. I think I'd like to, but I don't. But it seems to me that there's not a lot of people here who believe this stuff either, but we act like we believe it. And I said, how many of you are certain that this is true? And there was silence. This was obviously not the kind of question they were expecting. And then uh, the pastor, who was part of this group, said, well, Mike, if you're asking if I am certain that we as a local church with all the sort of secondary issues about church governance and baptism and all those kinds of things that we're right on that, he goes, no, I'm not certain of that at all. But if you're asking, am I certain that God exists and that Christ is his son? Yes, I'm certain. And I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> but I got voted in anyway. I don't think I should have been, but I got voted in anyway. <laughs> and not long after that, I sort of stopped attending. But then I met a person a while later who talked about a relationship with Christ, who talked about God's love, who shared the gospel very different from anything I had heard. I, I had been sort of been schooled in what I'll just call moralism, be good. And I was really drawn to this, but it took a long time for me because I had lots of questions and I was skeptical. I had doubts. And so it was a couple years for me, sort of going to Bible studies occasionally, reading things, asking questions, going forward, stepping back, before I finally said, yes, I want in. 
And I made a decision, a sort of a conscious decision, that I was going to put my trust in Christ. And when I did that, nothing seemed to happen. Okay? Uh, so unlike some of my friends, the weight of the world didn't fall off my shoulders. The heavens didn't part. I didn't hear the angels sing the Hallelujah Chorus. No Damascus Road experience for me. So I doubted that I had done it correctly. And I continued to move forward with doubt about whether or not this was all true. But over time, I settled into a conviction. I settled into a sense of peace that God was God and Christ was his son and that I had entered into an eternity-changing relationship with him. And I continued to have questions and feel some doubt. But over time, I adopted what I would say was a certitude. There was, there was conviction there. And I came to realize that um, I was probably always going to be navigating this. I had friends who had appeared to have no doubts. They were certain. And I thought initially that would be me one day. But over time, I started to realize that, that I probably was approaching this a little bit differently because of the way God had made me, because of the way I thought about things, and that I was always going to have to deal with some mystery that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't quite work through. And that I was never going to get the kind of post-enlightenment, rationalistic, scientific certitude that I initially thought I might get. But that that was okay. And I, I, I came into a settled sense of that was okay. Doubt was going to be a, a part of what went on in my life, but I was going to need to manage it. It became obvious to me that doubt was okay, but I was going to need to manage my doubts. And so um, I, I want to I talk about this. Now, just to be clear, because doubt is a topic I've discussion I've had with many of you, and some of you have experienced something that I have not, which is what we often refer to as the dark night of the soul, uh, uh, a, a particularly uh, devastating season of, of silence from God and a lack of, of clarity. Various people have expressed this. The, the diaries of Mother Teresa after she died were full of this dark night of the soul. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, doubted that God loved him. And when we read his diaries, it was very shocking. David Weil preached a sermon a couple years ago in which he said that after his mother died, he had graduated from seminary, been a pastor after his mother died, he went through this season of significant unsettlement and doubt. And he, he talked about that. I've never had that experience, but I have ongoing uh, questions and some skepticism, and I sort of have to to manage those doubts. So I want to talk about that. Uh, I want to talk about doubt because, first of all, it's a very big topic in Scripture. It's not just Thomas who doubts. Once you start to look for it, you see, okay, Adam doubted, Abraham doubted, David, Moses. I mean, you just start down the list. Uh, Gideon, Jeremiah, Peter, John the Baptist, who is hailed as like the greatest of all. Jesus says, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who has this this great prophecy about Jesus when Jesus is walking out to get baptized. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Later on, after John has been arrested and he's sitting on death row, 
He has his followers go to Christ and ask, are you really the one or should we be looking for someone else? Because this isn't exactly turning out like I thought it was going to turn out. Right? He expresses doubt. And then we've already talked about this passage where the, the father who Jesus is going to heal his child, if you believe, I'll heal. And, and, Jesus, and he says, I, I believe, help my unbelief. There's also uh, many other places where doubt surfaces. In Matthew 28, 17, which is right before the Great Commission. So this big mandate that we're given just before Christ ascends into heaven. After the resurrection, just before he ascends into heaven, he gathers his followers and you know, go to all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Just before he says that, the verse before he says that, it says they gathered, they worshipped, and some doubted. Right. So Christ, they've been with Christ for three years. He's risen from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. And they worship, and some doubt. And so doubt is a, is a fairly big topic in the Scripture. I want to cover it for that reason. I want to cover it because I, I want Christ Church to be a safe place to express doubt. When I became a Christ follower, I figured out after a while that, that, that the, the, the ministry I was involved in wasn't a safe place to express doubt. That I, I was told I was developing a reputation for having a critical spirit. And, uh, and so what we're told in Jude 1, is that we're to be merciful to those who have doubt. And I actually think that if we go after doubts... Uh, that they can be a springboard to greater faith. And I know that some of you have doubts, and I know that some of you will enter into a season of doubt. I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you to be devastated. I, I don't want you to think it's sin, but I don't want you to think it's no big deal. We need to manage our doubts. And uh, so we're going to go to Psalm 73, and, and I want to point out some things there. Before we do, let me just give you three sort of introductory uh, thoughts about doubt from a biblical perspective that will help inform Psalm 73. So the first thing is that we have to understand what we mean by doubt. And I am going to define it as the middle zone between faith and unbelief. So doubt is a little bit of the, the, the no man's land. It's a little bit closer to faith than to unbelief, but, but it is it is to waver. So the, the, uh, the Greek word for doubt uh, in the New Testament is distazo, and it means to hesitate or to waver. The Latin word for doubt, uh, dubium, uh, which gives us the word double, refers to people who are double-minded, right? They're sort of between faith and unbelief. Now, doubt is not unbelief. That's a different Greek word. That's a different idea. That's a, that's a, unbelief is a more settled uh, decision of the will. Doubt is to believe but to be skeptical and to be troubled. So uh, you need to understand, for this definition to work though, you need to understand just a little bit about what faith actually is. So normally when I'm talking about faith, biblical faith, I'm, I make the point that our faith is not good or bad based on how intensely we feel it, 
right? That faith is good or bad based on the object in which we invest it. So you can believe with white hot passion that thin ice is going to hold your weight and your faith is not going to change the fact that it's not going to hold your weight. But if you have faith in a well-constructed bridge, just a little bit of faith, it will work. So faith, biblical faith, is as good as the object in which we invest it. We invest our faith in Christ and the work of Christ. Now, that's what I'm normally stressing when I talk about faith. Our faith is invested in Jesus Christ. And it is Uh, Additionally, it is a decision. It is a commitment. It is a level of trust. The faith we have is the faith that we show. When I'm saying we're wavering, doubt is wavering between faith and unbelief, I'm using the word faith in this sense in terms of of sort of an internal barometer, a settled conviction. How are we doing with that? And so faith, excuse me, doubt is hanging out between thinking and believing internally that something is true and being at peace with it and believing that it's not true, actively believing it's not true. So that's doubt. Second thing to understand about doubt from a biblical perspective is that doubt is more of a spiritual issue than it is an intellectual issue. Now, these are fighting words for some people. And doubt today sort of enjoys a, uh, an aura of prestige. To believe is to be naive and uneducated. To doubt, to be a skeptic, is to be honest and, and smart. Uh, that's just this culture right now. Back up a couple hundred years ago, if you couldn't, if you couldn't make up your mind, you were like, what's, what's the matter with you? Like, grow up and make a decision like, on what you're going to base your life on. But today, to be skeptical is, is sort of to be, oh, that's sort of cool. So uh, there's people that would take issue with the idea that doubt is ultimately a spiritual issue more than it's an intellectual issue. But uh, I, I'm convinced that this is true for several reasons. First of all, it, it was my experience as a college pastor. Uh, so I was a college pastor for eight years. I became a college pastor because I wanted to talk with students about the meaning of life and the big questions. And it turns out um, that's not what you do as a college pastor at all because college students could care less about those by and large. Uh, they're thinking about the weekend and, and maybe they're thinking about grades. So uh, I, uh, I adopted this uh, idea that only 5% of college students think, 15% think they think, would rather die than think. And uh, there were days I thought that was being generous. Uh, So I didn't meet many students who had uh, intellectual problems with faith. Occasionally, there were what I would call smokescreen problems. Students would go, well, if God is all-powerful, then he make a rock so big he can't lift it? And you go, really? That's your question. So, like, if I answer that question, you're going to come to faith? Because that question is not really a real question, but okay. Uh, so I, you get a little bit of that, uh, but very seldom would you get with college students, sometimes you do, get problems of doubt that sort of come out of the problem of evil and suffering and injustice and, and those kinds of issues. What, what I also 
came to, to understand that doubt is, is a spiritual more than an than a intellectual issue is because of Romans 1, 18 and 19, in which Paul says, right, there are some things we cannot not know. We cannot not know that God exists. We can deny it. We can push it down because it's a very inconvenient truth for some people. The idea that there is a holy, all-knowing God is not a good data point when you want to live a certain kind of life. And so many people, and this is what Paul says, many people, because of their heart, suppress the truth. But, but that is a spiritual issue. It's not an intellectual issue. And in, a, in his book on doubt, uh, John Ortberg talks about the fact that recently psychology has come to the understanding that um, our heart influences our mind more often than our mind influences our heart. That, that we don't think our way to feelings as much as we feel our way to thoughts. We're not a brain on a stick. Our passions, our desires shape how we think. And so that there are, there are behavioral pre-commitments that we make that shape how we are going to land on certain issues. And I'll just say, again, my experience as a college pastor, lots of students stopped believing in God when they started sleeping around. Because now is a very inconvenient idea. Uh, and they didn't say, I'm not believing anymore because I'm, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. What they said was, you know, I heard this philosophy uh, professor and he said Christianity is just this. You know, so, okay, is that really the issue? So, just understand, I'm not saying always, but, but the Bible in my experience suggests that when we talk about doubt, it's often a spiritual more than an intellectual issue. We are in a battle. There is a spiritual battle that is going on, and we have to understand how that is going to shape how we experience things. Third thing to understand before we go to Psalm 73, is when we're talking about <clears throat> doubt, we need to understand that the Christian faith requires faith. Okay, I like to Say one profound thing in every sermon. So there you go. The Christian faith requires faith. You can tweet that out if you are inclined. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we need blind faith. We don't. We don't need blind faith. Right? There is, <laughs> when you look at the person and work of Christ, when you look at what he taught, when you look at what he did, when you look at the fulfillment of prophecy, right? this is not a blind leap in the dark to say this guy is different and I need to trust his claims. There's no one like Jesus. And so it's not a blind leap of faith. But we cannot prove that Christianity is true. We cannot prove that God exists. We, we can't. And this shouldn't shock anybody because the Bible celebrates faith. Right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is a good thing. God, God wants us to place our faith in Christ. So faith gets celebrated. Additionally, it shouldn't surprise us because it turns out we can't prove much. Like in a technical sense, uh, we can't prove much. And the stuff that we can prove is not very interesting. We can prove that 2 plus 2 equals 4. We can prove that water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. We can't prove that human rights are a good thing. Can't prove it. Thomas Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, it's not self-evident. It's not proven. It's, it's, just, it's, it's an assumption based on a Judeo-Christian framework. 
So there's not a lot of things that we can actually prove. And so we have to understand that uh, we have to understand this is also true for uh, anything else. Atheists can't prove atheism. Right? In anything we're going to believe is going to be a decision that we make. So, in light of all that, let's turn to Psalm 73. Um, there's a lot more I'd like to say about doubt. I would sure like you to understand that doubts are coming your way, so you expect them in this broken world. They're, they're, they're headed. They're going to knock on your door. I'd like you to not feed them, to not obsess about them. They're like attention-seeking children. If you give them more attention, they demand more and more. They can be scary. They can be unsettling. But, you, but, but we need to move on. I also want you to know that if you're suffering with doubts, you shouldn't go alone. You're going to need others to come alongside you. And um, so I, there's a lot I'd like to say about doubt. I want to read part of Psalm 73 for you. This is a psalm of Asaph, and it is a psalm in which he wrestles with doubt. And I'm going to read uh, the first um, five verses in the message, which is a paraphrase, because I, I like the way it sort of sets it up. And so Asaph says, No doubt about it, God is good, good to good people, good to the good-hearted. Okay? But I nearly missed it. I nearly missed seeing his goodness. Because, and now he expresses it, he says, I was looking the other way. I was looking up to the people at the top. I was envying the wicked who had it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world. So now he's expressing his feeling. I was looking around at all these people who are not good, who are not trying, who are not a church, who are not trying to help other people, and they're prospering. And it leads him to doubt. And then in verse 6 through 10, he sort of describes what these wicked, selfish people are, and it can feel a little bit like the people um, living north of Chicago, so I won't read that, but uh, dropping down to verse 11, he then begins to voice his doubt. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Right? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get, got, get by with everything. They have, they have it made. They pile up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck. That's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. Okay, so he is articulating his doubt. I'm looking around and I'm seeing wicked people prosper. Why would I believe? Why would I try? Why would I go down this path? Then he starts to process. Verse 15, if I had given in and talked like this, I would have been in trouble. When I tried to figure it out, though, all I got was a splitting headache until, point number one, until I entered the sanctuary of God. The first thing I want to say to you, if you have doubt, is that you're going to have to play offense as well as defense. You're going to have to field a team. You're going to have to do the things that you know you need to do. You're going to have to Enter the temple, the sanctuary of God. You're going to have to go to church. You're going to have to read your Bible. Keep talking to God. Keep praying to God. And, and see the tone of this psalm. The psalms are amazing at giving us insight into the human condition. 
and, and they give us a third way as opposed to the two ways that, that, that seem to be out there right now when it comes to dealing with our doubts, with our emotions. The first way, the religious way that, that people tend to deal with their emotions or they tend to pray is to try and clean them up and to be really nice and to say only nice things to God and to make nice promises to God and to ask for very nice, safe things. And they're not expressing any of the angst and the turmoil and the anguish that's going on in their hearts because those are not nice things. And oftentimes, when, when I get people to pray the Psalms, they're like, you can't say those things to God. No, actually, those are the prayers for us to pray. Right? And they're very bold. And God can handle our anger. God can handle our doubt. God can handle our fears. God can handle our honesty. So the, the Psalms head down a different path. One way people deal with their emotions is to clean them up, to sanitize them. The other way that we see people dealing with their emotions today is to deify them and to say, well, this is what I feel. I have to be true to myself. I, I have to act on my, on my desires because that's who I am. So we got people that sort of deny them and we got people who deify them. And what we get in the Psalms, like Psalm 73, is bringing our thoughts and our emotions, our fears, our doubts, whatever, to God and processing those things before God. So the first thing we see is we're going we're to have to engage. We're going to have to play offense. We're going to have to keep pursuing God, keep talking to God. Then um, we go on to number two. Reading on. Um, still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture. The slippery road you've put them on with a final crash in a ditch of delusions, in the blink of an eye, disaster, a blind curve in the dark, and nightmare. We wake up and rub our eyes, nothing. There's nothing to them there, no, there never was. When I, beleaguered, um, when I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox, in your presence. Point number two, we need to doubt our doubts. So we just need to be consistent. If we're going to doubt our faith, we need to doubt our doubts. And we need to, we need to unpack them. And so the first thing that we see here is that, that uh, he says, look, um, when I was beleaguered and bitter, consumed by envy, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox in your very presence. So he begins to look at how he is feeling and thinking and to recognize in his envy a sense of pride and greed. I'm guessing that he would not be feeling the way he was feeling if he had been prospering. Right? So, so he's expressing in the anger of injustice. I'm looking around and these wicked people are prospering. Right? Well, once he starts to unpack this, he realizes I've got some envy going on in my heart, right? Once I start to pull apart my doubts, I realize they're not as clean as I thought. In, um, in a fascinating book written by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, Lewis imagines a uh, discussion taking place between 
uh, people in heaven and people in hell. And what's happened is that a bus shows up in hell and takes people on a tour of heaven. Okay, so obviously this is fiction. But uh, he imagines a bus taking people from hell up to heaven. And there they see their friends and they interact. And there is a discussion that takes place between two professors. One professor who's in heaven, who's talking to his former colleague who is in hell. And he says, look, you need to repent and believe. And the, the, the professor that's in hell says, I'm just being honest about my opinions. How could I get in trouble for being honest about my opinions? And the professor in heaven says, we need to be honest. We were never honest about our opinions. Right? He says, we, we crafted our research in a way that it affirmed the ideas that were trendy. <laughs> like we, we shaped what we focused on. We went down a certain path. We were never ultimately honest. And I think we see, we see that we have got to doubt our doubts. We've got to be rigorous with this. Here's another way to think about this. You, you've got to understand that, um, that when we compare our footholds, and that's the language that we see in Psalm 73. He talks about his foothold He's, he's starting to slip, and then in verse 18, he says, when I realized they were on a, a slipperier path, he's comparing worldviews. And I just want to say, when we actually compare, when we understand how this really works, we understand that the question is never one between belief and unbelief. So the question is always between what I'm going to choose to believe. If I choose to disbelieve in God, I am going to be believing in my opinion or my intellect or my intuition. We're always placing our faith somewhere. So there's not this position of neutrality and Christians are the ones that say, I'm going to choose from this position of absolute neutrality to believe in God. No, there's no position of neutrality. We're making assumptions all the time. We can't prove any of these things. Different book related to C.S. Lewis. The, the point gets made brilliantly here. Sheldon Van Auken wrote a book called The Severe Mercy. If you've not read it or not read it recently, worth, worth going back and rereading. And he is a student, an American student who goes over to Oxford to study. And while he's over in Oxford studying, he, he meets Lewis, who's a professor there. And Lewis begins to draw him to faith. And at some point, Van Auken wakes up and says this. The position was not, as I had been comfortably thinking all these years, merely a question of whether or not I was going to accept Jesus. It was a question of whether or not I was going to accept him or reject him. My God, there was a gap behind me too. Perhaps the leap to, perhaps the leap to accepting Christ was horrifying. It was a gamble. But what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God there was no certainty that he was not. And he realizes, right, we're, we're, we're going to have to make some steps by faith. And saying that I'm just going to stay where I'm at is a losing hand. Right? What makes you think that's true? So 
We've got to doubt our doubts. We've got to head down that path. And then finally, and there's so much more here, but finally, uh, the last thing I want to say, and it comes out of verse 23, is that we need to reach for his hand. So you may be doubting. Maybe you have been circling around the question of faith in Christ for a long time. You may be believing but skeptical, and it's held you back. I just want to say, um, at some point, you've got to place your bets. Right? At some point, you've got to decide. And I can think of nothing better than to say, okay, God, I am placing my hand in yours. And that's the language that is used here uh, where he says, I'm going I'm to reach for your hand. I'm, yet I am always with you. You hold me by the right hand. Perhaps you're hesitating, you're skeptical. I want to say, look, I get it. Doubt is a big topic. It goes on. Right now we see us through a, a, a glass dimly, 1 Corinthians 13. We can't have the kind of clarity in this broken world that we want. There's always going to be questions. There's always going to be mystery. We're, we've got to have a certain level of humility to understand that we're not going to be able to make ultimate sense of God and his plans on this side of the grave. But at some point, we have to say, what's my best bet? And, and place our faith somewhere. In ourself, in a belief that this is it, or in God, and, and in Christ. And say, okay, I'm, I am going to choose to exercise faith. My experience has been that while I still have doubts, <laughs> there's still stuff that doesn't make sense to me, that... that that there is a certitude, that there is a peace, that there is an assurance that comes as I say, God, I'm, I'm going I'm to follow hard after you. Right? You're my best bet, and I'm going to run hard after you. And a lot of the, a lot of the concern, a lot of the, the fog begins to settle, and there's a sense in which this is the path forward. So I want to say, look, uh, we've got to understand it's a big topic. It's a big topic in the Bible. We've got to understand that there's a whole lot of, of noise that's always going to be out there. We've got to understand that doubt is more of a spiritual problem than an intellectual one. We've got to understand that we're going to have to have faith and exercise it some way. But uh, don't feed your doubts. Expect them. And, and don't obsess over your doubts. Don't go it alone. Be humble. And, and then reach out to God. Place your hand in his. My experience is that it's the path forward. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I pray for your presence and your love and your grace to be understood and appreciated. I pray that for those that are struggling in sort of a fog of doubt, that, that that would slowly lift and that you would give them a sense of your love and your, your, your reality. I pray that you would help them to see more clearly uh, the, the, the options in front of them and to see the beauty and the brilliance of Christ and that um, this is a path forward. Spirit of God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Ultimately, uh, we depend upon you for the kind of uh, faith that changes our hearts. So I set that in front of you and pray, Lord God.
for those that are struggling with any kind of lack of, of conviction about who you are and what we're being called to. Give greater clarity. Spirit of God, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.